Initially, when the case came to my desk, uh, what I had were transcriptions of witnesses. And uh, having never been in Rwanda, not having an understanding of the history of the country, sometimes I read things in, in the transcripts and I couldn't, I couldn't understand it. Sometimes it, 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 in my mind, it felt it, it was not realistic. When I went to Rwanda, when I went to see the victims, when I listened to them, I understood we looked at all the qualifications. It was a big picture. The capitalized prosecutor. We can't expect someone to be an inspiring world leader, a deft diplomat, a brilliant boss, and an incisive legal strategist all at the same time. But in fact, we do. Impeccable personal and professional integrity. I mean, a list of really, really incredible sort of characteristics. We can't conjure them up. And we can only hope that that person will have some pixie dust. Our job was to come up with the most highly qualified candidates. We did that. Welcome to our special edition of what we are calling the Prosecutor Files for Asymmetrical Haircuts. In this series, we're trying to interview all the candidates for the International Criminal Court Prosecutor. And in this episode, we're talking to Richard Roy. Hi, Richard. How are you? We're good. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this uh, Sunday from Canada. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Richard Roy is a Canadian prosecutor with almost 30 years experience in complex cases of organized crimes, economic crimes, terrorism cases. He also tackled a genocide prosecution, Desiro Munyaneza, who was convicted in the end for crimes against humanity and war crimes for his role in the 1994 Rwandan genocide. And uh, Richard is one of the four listed candidates, the shortlist that came out of the election process at the ICC. And the standout line in his application letter for me was when he talked about his Rwanda prosecution, saying, I learned the importance of listening to witnesses and victims and to pay attention to their security and well-being. It also forced me to challenge my own preconceptions of the case and of the evidence. So our first and most uh, basic question, Richard, is why on earth do you want this job? <laughs> well, it's... It's basically a willingness to serve. As you alluded to in uh, your introduction, uh, I've been a prosecutor now for 30 years, and all of my professional choices have been dedicated towards serving justice and serving the public interest, uh, and, and doing so through the application of the rule of law in investigations and prosecution of uh, complex and serious crimes, sometimes international. Now. I believe, and in my career, the most significant contribution I did is in the case you alluded to, the case of genocide um, against Mr. Desiree Munyanisa for his participation in the genocide in Rwanda. In that case, it brought me the opportunity to deliver justice to victims of atrocities and crimes that, uh, to the level that I had never, uh, of the level of seriousness I had never encountered in my career. That's the very reason why I became a public servant 30 years ago. And when the opportunity came, um, I, uh, I reflected upon it. And I believe in the mission of the Office of the Prosecutor. Uh, it's what I've been doing all my career. So I decided to offer my services. I decided to offer the knowledge and the experience that three decades of law enforcement has given me to that office, to the court, for the service of international justice and the fight to end impunity. Just briefly, because you alluded to the importance of the Rwandan genocide, in that quote we have, you said it forced the case forced you to challenge your own preconceptions of the case and of the evidence. I'm curious if you could just briefly touch on how, how it did that. Well, um, I, I, I can explain it in, in this way. And, and it comes back to uh, the importance of uh, a sophisticated understanding of uh, the situation country, the political and social context of the evidence uh, that you receive. Initially, when the case came to my desk, uh, what I had were transcriptions of witnesses. And uh, having never been in Rwanda, 
uh, not knowing the history, uh, not knowing the uh, the context. The, 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 you know, I heard in the news and uh, reports, but not having an understanding of the history of the country uh, and the political uh, context of the country, and even the geographics of 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 the situation where the events that the witnesses were narrating in the transcription. Uh, how things were unfolding. Sometimes I read things in, in the transcripts and I couldn't, uh, I couldn't understand it. Sometimes it, 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 in my mind it felt uh, as uh, this couldn't happen. It, it was not realistic. When I went to Rwanda, when I went to see the victims, when I listened to them, when I got to see the the communities and found out how small they were, uh, I understood, and it made me understand uh, uh, that what the witnesses were saying was actually credible. An example: a witness was talking about various um, uh, crime scenes where it, that he had a, that he had seen. Uh, in a very short period of time, and I was wondering how could he go to all these crime scenes in such a short period of time. When I got in Rwanda, when I met the witness, and when I saw the place, I found out that it was a very small community. So what the witness was saying uh, was real and was actually credible. So that's the type of example I mean where my preconceptions after reading the case in, in the first instance were, were challenged in regards to uh, how I was appreciating, for example, the credibility of testimony at first glance. Let's uh, turn to one of the big issues that's uh, facing the uh, court at the moment, and in particular facing um, the current prosecutor and may well face uh, the future prosecutor. You know that there are sanctions against her and a senior member of her staff. Uh, you know that that's from the United States in relation to the investigation into Afghanistan. How are you going to respond? Um, you're from Canada. You must have some close uh, connections to the United States. How would you cope if you or maybe other staff were going to be sanctioned by the United States? Well, uh, uh, first, uh, one has to, uh, I mean, today's the, uh, follows the American election. And we see that a, a new administration will come in January in the United States. Are you saying that you think that uh, sanctions will change? That everything, you know, it's all going to, to change and it's going to be um, um, a better relationship for you? I won't go that far. Uh, I'll say that the decision is an executive decision. It's not a legislative decision. So it will be up to the next administration to decide whether they keep those sanctions. Nevertheless, I'll answer your question, presuming because the sanctions are present and they'll be present till January. Uh, I understand that, uh, that, that the ICC's job has political uh, ramifications. And as you've seen in what I've said in um, at the public hearings, I have uh, experience in working in political uh, sensitive cases as a prosecutor including in matters that are unpopular even to, to, uh, by certain governments and even in the past my own government here in Canada. But to me, the most important thing is that the prosecutors act independently, uh, impartially, and that they don't succumb to political pressures from any sides. Now, if in the event that myself or anyone in my staff would be object of, uh, of sanctions, well, uh, I would obviously have to evaluate the situation and to determine how to best uh, defend and maintain the independence and the impartiality uh, in the execution of my own functions. Seems to me to seek uh, expert advice from outside counsel. I would certainly be interested to know if the Office of the Prosecutor right now has received such advice uh, on the impact of sanctions. Uh, it could mean creating a wall around certain staff to avoid and to prevent any conflicts of interest that could arise uh, as a result of me being sanctioned. Uh, and I would also work with all the other organs of the court in, in the event that uh, such sanctions impacted uh, my functions. 
Uh, I read in the independent expert review the comment that uh, the best vehicle for mounting a defense of the court towards the sanction was the assembly of uh, state parties, as well as governments uh, of the members of the assembly. I would work with the court to, uh, with other organs of the court to liaise and to provide information to the assembly to mount a defense, uh, a vigorous defense of um, the uh, international court. But I think the Office of the Prosecutor should impact, sorry, should evaluate and, uh, and should audit and document the impacts that the sanction have on its operation. What impact do the sanctions have on recruitment? Uh, are there people in the staff uh, right now uh, that the sanctions make that they want uh, to leave the office? How does the sanctions impact uh, the capacity of the office to seek cooperation from states? from uh, even from victim groups and affected communities. I think that's the most important uh, subject matter that needs to be looked into. And that information must be provided to the Assembly of State Parties in order for them to properly defend the court. And me personally, I don't have I don't have any uh, preoccupations. I have, I'm not a U.S. citizen. I don't have personal assets in the United States. So the sanctions wouldn't affect me personally. You're talking about the, um, the bigger effect of the sanctions and the work of the court. But would those kinds of sanctions, that kind of political pressure, um, make you stop continuing the investigations into Afghanistan? The, the answer to, to your question is no. I would follow uh, the, the saying that was posted by the British government in the preparation for World War II, and that is well known. I would keep calm and I would carry on. Um, as I mentioned earlier, my, my main responsibility as a prosecutor would be to act with independence, impartiality, and not to succumb to political pressures from any sides. And that those are the principles that would guide my approach towards the Afghanistan um, investigation. You, as a, a prosecutor, wants to be obviously politically independent, but there is also a need to kind of galvanize political support, giving the very sensitive cases in the pipeline, and not only Afghanistan, but there are also Ukraine, Palestine, Philippines. Now, you've talked about trying to uh, rally the ASP to explain uh, to explain the court a bit, but what would you do to galvanize political support apart from uh, trying to work it through the ASP? I think the most effective way to galvanizing support uh, of the work of the office is first of all uh, to enhance the office's standing and credibility, and to demonstrate the office's commitment to undertaking. Uh, high-quality and effective investigations and prosecutions, uh, and, and to do so in an independent and uh, impartial manner. If we do our job well, we will garner support from the parties. The most important constituency that needs to be galvanized are the victims and the affected communities. They are the ones who can provide the information and the evidence to the office so the office can proceed to investigations that uh, with success and that could lead to convictions after a fair trial. If you look at uh, the questionnaire I answered for the civil society organization, I laid out in there many of my thoughts, my initial thoughts, as to how we could galvanize victims in affected communities. I talk about better informing the public about the Office of the Prosecutor's capabilities and activities through leveraging the social media, uh, access to field office, partnerships with the registry. I talk about um, a dedicated community outreach officer for each investigation so that the OTP has a broader communication strategy with the victims and the affected communities. I talk about communicating strategies for each examination and even each preliminary examinations uh, with a comprehensive outreach plans that reach these communities. I talk about building relationships with, with local law enforcement and community organization. And I talk about uh, community meetings, meetings with the local community members, which I think is an essential way to ensure direct engagement with the impacted 
populations. If we have the support of the communities and the populations, then states uh, will take notice. That could galvanize uh, state support to the office's activities. At least that's what I believe. What you're saying now is a kind of essentially an overhaul of the outreach and communication strategy of the Office of the Prosecutor. Wouldn't that mean a lot more people um, to have to get on board and a lot more people to manage? One will have to evaluate once we're there whether we can uh, expand uh, the resources. Uh, that may be highly unlikely in the context of the COVID pandemic. The independent expert review does talk about synergies that can be achieved working with the registry to uh, and the use of the ICC's field office, working with, I think, the public information unit of the registry, if I'm not mistaken. So there are other ways to, to try to reach these, ob uh, these objectives, I, I certainly believe. Let's uh, turn to the independent uh, expert review. Um, we'd actually reached out and asked members of our community what kind of questions they would like to uh, to put to candidates. International lawyer Priya Pillai rose to the occasion and she even recorded her questions. Um, so we're just going to play one from her. What are the recommendations of the independent expert review that need to be addressed urgently and how do you propose to do so? The report talks about um, an OTP-wide committee mandated to review the recommendation and institute the reforms. I would want to first put into place such a committee uh, and to discuss with OTP staff uh, how to institute and implement the reform. And that should be done uh, in uh, what I would uh, describe uh, on, a rolling on a rolling basis. Now, in regards to what particular recommendations of the um, of the experts review I I think need to be urgently addressed well I see that the independent expert make findings regarding management and leadership at the office of the prosecutor um, I've written down the words here they talk about a working culture that appears to be hier uh, hierarchical I'm sorry for my English. <laughs> uh, I mean, they talk about clear divisions between senior management and other staff. They talk about frustrations arising at the lower level for lack of empowerment processes. They talk about uh, uh, bureaucratic processes. The report talks about little contact uh, from the prosecutor and the deputy with the in integrated teams handling the situation in these cases. Uh, they talk about the real, they talk about a perception that the real power in the OTP uh, rests with the directors. So I think the first issue I would look into is management and leadership because no reform can happen without um, management and, and leadership reform, without the management and leadership that they require. The, what I noted, noted in the report also is issues regarding decision-making processes and the uh, regulatory framework of the Office of the Prosecutor. Uh, they talk about an absence or lack of definition of the roles and responsibilities of those in senior levels of management. They talk about the lack of clarity in decision-making processes. They talk about the absence of a lessons learned compliance mechanism. Uh, they talk about an operations manual, a guidance document that is of absolute importance for investigation. Well, the report mentions an operations manual that has not been updated and that, is, and that has even been, I was surprised to read that, uh, abandoned. So uh, you, sound, um, you sound a bit shocked, a bit surprised by all of these lapses. Well, that's what I was wondering. If you read that report, do you still want to work at the Office of the Prosecutor? Because it doesn't paint a very pretty picture of an organization you might you want to head. Well, when I read it, um, it actually motivated me even more. Uh, these types of, of, of fixes regarding uh, management and leadership, and particularly regarding uh, decision-making and guidelines and procedures, well, I've lived in that 
for 30 years. That is something in which I have expertise and that's something uh, that I can bring to the table at the office of the prosecutor. So uh, it actually motivates me to try to bring about that change uh, within the office. And I would certainly consider the recommendations of the independent expert group, uh, group regarding issues like I've already alluded to, creating an OTP-wide working group that would look how to implement the recommendations, particularly the ones regarding the regulatory framework. To me, it's paramount that the operations manual be updated and consolidated. The, uh, the experts review talk about incorporating all the, the internal guidelines and the policy papers within the um, the, the operation, operations manual. And, and to me, that makes sense. Uh, they talk about uh, clarifying which guidelines within the op uh, OTP framework, regulatory documents, which are mandatory and which are optional. These are all things that the organization I belong to right now in Canada does. Uh, and to me, doing that job and providing that guidance and making sure that the Office of the Prosecutor has an operations manual uh, that will last and provide long-term guidance is absolutely essential for the Office to conduct uh, high-quality investigations and prosecutions. And I would give priority to that. From everything you've been reading, do you actually believe that there is systemic or and or institutional racism at the ICC? And if so, what concrete measures will you take if elected to address it? That question came in from academic and commentator Mark Kirsten. I have not worked at the ICC, so I don't have personal knowledge of it. Uh, so it's difficult for me to say uh, definitely that there is systemic or institutional racism at the ICC. But I can say this, it's certainly my experience and it's certainly my knowledge generally that in organizations and in the workplace, there are prejudices and bias that affect um, minorities and people of certain races disproportionately. And I, it wouldn't surprise me, and I would certainly understand that that's, I don't, I don't see why the ICC would be immune to that and would be different. Uh, and I think in regards to measures uh, that could be put in place, the, the first measure is diversity in the workplace. The independent expert talk about gross disparities in diversity among the staff. They talk about the fact that uh, the recruitment, the number of staff within the ICC, and it seems to me also within the Office of the Prosecutor, um, the, the, the group of the Western and other European, uh, Western European and other states, which includes North America, where I come from, uh, is grossly uh, disproportionate when compared to other regional groups. And I think that issue needs to be addressed. I think that uh, diversity is critical to the success of the International Criminal Court. And I would be uh, dedicated for the Office of the Prosecutor to have a diverse workforce, especially at the senior levels. To me, it's not only a principled matter, but it's important in how the office can work because it needs staff that can be better understand and communicate with the major stakeholders, the victims and the impacted communities. So how will we proceed? Well, I think uh, the Office of the Prosecutor should prioritize geographic diversity in all its new hires, particularly in high-level positions. Again, uh, it's not just at the senior level, pretty much throughout the staff. I think the office should proceed in, the, in recruitment through targeted uh, outreach to underrepresented communities. And I think another way to address the issue of uh, systemic and institutional racism is through training on diversity issues. As a member of the uh, Law Society of Ontario, as a member of the uh, Quebec Bar, and as a member of the Public Prosecution Service of Canada, uh, I have to follow such training. Uh, and I've experienced how such training really allow, allowed me to identify the prejudices and the bias that I had without really knowing them. So I think it's absolutely important that uh, all the staff and most particularly senior management follow such training. 
Uh, talking about these kind of issues, um, there was also uh, a lot to do in the independent experts report about uh, misconduct and uh, climate of bullying and harassment. So we're going to just be very blunt with you. Have you ever been accused of bullying or other misconduct yourself? For me, uh, courtesy, respect is a duty of a lawyer, is a duty of an officer of justice, and I've always abided by that. So no, within uh, I have never been accused of uh, bullying, harassment, or sexual harassment in 30 years of my career. And I am a member in good standing of the Law Society of Ontario and the Quebec Bar. And have you ever been a you know, even if you're yourself very courteous, what we see from the independent expert report and what other experts say is, is that this kind of behavior seems to be maybe even endemic in, in law offices, that is still very much ingrained some of the bullying behavior, at least. Did you ever witness this type of behavior uh, in an office where you worked in? And what did you do? Uh, I've never, uh, and I was fortunate, I've never uh, experienced personally or witnessed a situation of, of, uh, of bullying, harassment, or sexual harassment within the offices I've worked. And would you, if you found now that OTP staff were involved in workplace misconduct, including sexual harassment, what measures would you very concretely take to prevent that? Well, as I stated in the uh, public hearings, a healthy office culture for me is very important. And I stated that I am committed to building what I would call a talented and passionate workforce. And I said, and I repeat, that would operate with, with integrity and commitment to the office's mandate. And what does that mean? Well, it means an office where a PPO people respect each other and the stakeholders. And it starts with how people work together. I would want to build an office where people of diverse backgrounds and views and experience can do their best work and support one another. And how would I proceed to address these issues to prevent sexual harassment and uh, bullying and misconduct? Uh, well, I think the first rule for changing office culture, and any compliance officer of a major organization will say the same, is tone from the top. The prosecutor and senior management at the office of the prosecutor must send continuously the clear message that uh, there's no place for sexual harassment, bullying, and harassment generally of any kind in the workplace. So the first message is also to state that I and management would take a hard line on inappropriate behavior to ensure that everyone who works in the office feel safe and respected. Now, the second thing that needs to be done to address these issues is uh, that the procedures are improved to address harassment and misconduct. And, and that is referred to in the independent expert review. It means clarifying the ways by which the employees and the workforce can raise safely concerns without fear of retaliation. Because reporting misconduct takes courage. So I think care and support must be provided to people who raise these concerns. And if a complaint is found to be valid, well, there must be consequences for the offender. And that could go up to termination of employment, particularly uh, if we're talking about a hard line and a zero tolerance. Uh, there are other issues that need to be addressed to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace. One of them, and already, I already alluded to it, is training. I think managers should receive training so they understand the impact and cost of bullying and harassment and discriminatory behavior on the individuals working in an organization and on the organization itself. And, and the last issue, I think, uh, particularly in the sexual harassment context, is uh, gender diversity at the uh, upper level of the office, particularly in managerial positions. Gender balance appears to me to be an effective preventive measure, particularly in regards to sexual harassment. Um, I've seen how my office, the organization I belong to, has promoted and achieved and been successful in, in achieving gender balance at the upper levels of management of the office. And I've seen the impact it can have on the uh, functioning of, of our organization. Let's turn for a moment now to some of your actual work plans. Um, 
During the ASP organised hearings, all of the candidates spoke about the need for higher conviction rates. Um, do you have a view as to why the Office of the Prosecutor has failed to achieve that and what you're going to do differently? There's no easy answer to this. As a prosecutor, and I've lived it throughout all of my career, I can tell you that trials are inherently uncertain. Trials are what a Superior Court judge once described as organic processes. You don't necessarily know how they're going to end. I can say this, a decision to prosecute is premised on the reasonable prospect of conviction. So no prosecutor can guarantee a conviction, especially uh, when dealing with international complex crimes. Uh, to me, the only way to improve the conviction rate is to ensure high quality investigations uh, that respect the rights of the accused and that respect the, uh, the rights of victims. Uh, 30 years as a prosecutor has taught me that a successful prosecution, well, it's entirely dependent on effective investigations. And effective investigations require having high quality and experienced investigators from diverse backgrounds. In the context of uh, genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes, in-country experience is incredibly important. So there's a human resources aspect to this. I know that it's been reported in the independent review, but also in other reports, that many uh, Office of the Prosecutor investiga investigators lack the adequate experience and that results in the failure for t to them to accurately assess the viability of cases. Uh, I read in another report uh, that the people involved in the investigation of a situation in a particular country had no knowledge uh, or experience working in this region. And these concerns are echoed in the independent expert review. Now, if I was, a, a, if I was elected as a, as a prosecutor, I think one of my first tasks would be to review the investigation division to ensure that we hire and promote the right people, especially in today's investigative challenges. If you look at the independent review's finding, well, I agree when they say that the work uh, of investigations require people with law enforcement backgrounds and experience in large criminal scale investigation. They need cultural awareness and knowledge of domestic politics and the context of the country. They all, the office also need people with specific skills, cyber investigations, financial investigations, and military investigations. And in regards to the human resources aspect of the investigative division, I noted the passage in the independent expert review regarding the lack of resources. They talk about an imbalance of staffing between the investigative division and the prosecutorial division. They even state that the investigation division is the one that is the most understaffed. Uh, it's never been my experience as a prosecutor in any case I've undertaken that there are more prosecutors involved than investigators. So uh, if elected, that's an issue I uh, would look into. In regards to uh, the human investigators, again, training is an issue. I was very surprised to read in the independent expert review that there is widespread agreement within the office of the prosecutor that there's an absence of consistent training and development plans relating to issues as basic as the fundamentals of criminal evidence collection. Uh, I would definitely give consideration to have within the OTP an officer responsible for training and developments to address the issues that need training of uh, the office. And uh, I would finally say, and I've alluded to this earlier, uh, investigative documents and processes like the operations manual. These are absolutely essential for the office to, that they need to be updated and they need to be applied. And they need to, make, to reflect the best practices in investigations. Uh, and, 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 and to standardize the way the office works uh, and so it can, you can provide long-term processes and success in, for example, evidence collection. Uh, these are, to me, practices uh, that are successful uh, to, making, uh, to having an investigation uh, that is of such quality that it will bring up 
the conviction rate. And lastly, I would mention um, they talk about the report in uh, taking consideration of a of a policy or guidelines regarding guilty pleas. I think that should be looked into, and that could obviously uh, assist in um, in a higher conviction rate. This is all very internal process. So if we kind of look out towards more the communication and how the ICC is seen, you said something already about the wanting to increase outreach to affected communities. Uh, But if you become uh, the ICC prosecutor, uh, you will become, in a way, the face of the court. And we, of course, tried to Google you before we interviewed you, and you have a very low profile online. This is going to drastically change for you if you do become prosecutor. Are you ready for that kind of scrutiny and uh, having to be the public face of international justice? Uh, well, 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 I am. First, let me explain to you why uh, I have such a low profile online. Uh, I'm Senior General Counsel of the Public Prosecution Service of Canada, so I I kind of have an obligation to keep a low online uh, profile. Uh, I perform my duties in the public eye, and even though you don't you haven't found me on, in Google searches. In particular points in my career, I have done uh, prosecutions that within my own country have attracted significant media attention and even attention of, of, of the parliament and the House of Commons of Canada. As senior general counsel, um, I can't compromise my ability to do my job in the future through statements that could be found online and taken out of context. I represent the director of public prosecution and I must take care and caution not to undermine her authority. And I would have to say also that there are security reasons why uh, I have to have a low profile, particularly uh, in social media, uh, due to the nature of certain investigations and prosecutions in which I'm involved in. As I said, I'm very prepared to deal with this. I understand that the situation would drastically change if I would be elected prosecutor. I give uh, media training within my organization. So I have experience and knowledge in how to um, conduct myself in the public eye and in relations to the media. And I'd say I'd continue to act as I'm doing as a senior general counsel for the Public Prosecution Service of Canada. That means what? That means, well, communicating with the media and the public on all matters that involve the work of the Office of the Prosecutor. It means providing the media with timely, complete, and accurate information on all matters relating to the office of the the prosecutor. I would relate to the media and the public in a matter of I've always done so uh, as senior general counsel. That is, I would address the public in a matter that is courteous, dispassionate, and free from provocative rhetoric. Uh, in making public statements, I would, as I've done so in the past always, uh, respect the confidentiality uh, uh, of the information uh, that the office has. Uh, I would make sure that any comments I make not undermine fair trial rights of accused, uh, and I would never say anything uh, that would uh, compromise the confidence of the general public, of the wider public, in the International Criminal Court. These are all duties of a Crown Council, like I am in Canada. And I think they're completely coherent, and that they're the same for the person who needs to act as the next prosecutor. And so in that sense, I think I'm very prepared to deal with the scrutiny. There's a question related uh, to this that uh, came in from Priya Pillai. Uh, Let's hear it now. For civil society organizations, would engagement with the ICC look any different with you in charge? Now, Priya's question about civil society, uh, you may have already mentioned a little that you say you think it's important to engage with victims' communities. So what specific change are you going to make? I understand that civil Uh, society organizations are what um, is described, I think, in the report as a force multiplier for the court uh, in promoting and carrying out the work of the court. And and I understand that 
particularly support from local civil society, is key for the office to have uh, to acquire cooperation from the affected populations and the victims groups. Uh, and also uh, to put pressure on political organizations within the situation countries. Um, in the, with the independent expert, the civil society organization raised the issue of the need for the court, but they mentioned especially the office of the prosecutor to recognize that civil society can constitute a strong partner, but with both sides retaining their independence. Uh, the expert point to the fact that there are no guidelines for civil society organizations to follow to ensure that their work is complementary to that of the office of the prosecutor. I think they're right that in, in, in the guidelines right now, they fall outside the category or, or what is described as uh, intermediaries. So this is something I would look into uh, in order to building this a uh, strong relationship with civil society organization. The report also mentions difficulties in communicating with the office of the prosecutor. Uh, the fact that there's no focal point for non-governmental organizations uh, to have contacts with the office of the prosecutor. So I've looked at the recommendations of the independent experts, and I would certainly give consideration to many, if not all of them. And I'll point to some of them more precisely. Appointing a, a field staff member to be responsible for relations with relevant civil society organizations and doing so jointly with the, the registry's outreach staff. I would consider the recommendation that when the Office of the Prosecutor visits uh, situation countries, that side events be done with local civil society organizations. Uh, and as I alluded to, I think... Uh, it's worthwhile looking into how uh, the guidelines and the relationship between the court and the OTP in particular and civil society organization uh, could be formalized. And I would look into that. And if it becomes a policy, I would want that to be also included in the operations manual. If you look at the crimes, the international crimes that the office is now focusing its energy on, what for you are the most pressing crimes today? What would you like to see maybe more prosecuted, maybe get extra attention from the Office of the Prosecutor? Investigating must always be information-driven. Prosecuting and charging decisions must always be evidence-driven. So it depends on the information received and on the evidence collected, uh, the types of crimes we'll investigate. That being said, I think consideration... Uh, must also be given to reflecting as much as possible the full breadth of the criminal conduct that is being investigated in a situation or in a, in, in, in a, in a particular country. And that will obviously depend on the conflict. It would depend on the evidence. And it will depend on the strategy that the office of the prosecutor can follow. I've read how and, and, and seen how the office of the prosecutor is responsive to the specificity of conflicts, and I agree with that. For example, the Almaty case where, where the accused was charged for crimes of intentionally directing attacks against historic documents or buildings dedicated to religion. Uh, I've noticed that the office of the prosecutor has demonstrated the same in the Halassan case. Uh, charging forced marriage as a crimes against humanity under other inhumane acts, sections of Article S uh, 7, inhumane acts uh, causing great suffering or injury to physical and mental health. So I would continue uh, such approaches if I would be elected as prosecutor. I, I have found interesting, and, I and this is something I would look into definitely more, uh, the perspective views that the office has already mentioned of the crime of enslavement as a crime against humanity and how in certain circumstances it can be used regarding trafficking in persons and in, per in particular women and children. I know that the office has mentioned that, that the situation of, of migrants and international human trafficking in the Libya situation has attracted the office of the prosecutor. In December 2018, the prosecutor stated at the Assembly of State Parties uh, that she was to develop a, a policy paper 
namely on modern slavery and human trafficking. I would certainly would want to continue to develop this policy to in view, with a view to investigate and prosecute modern slavery and international human trafficking within the Rome Statute framework. Another issue, and this is an issue in which I have particular significant experience, is financial investigations. I believe uh, that a greater emphasis should be placed on investigative private actors, including corporate ones who are responsible for increasing hostilities and worsening conflicts. Uh, these could be the role in the private sector in the exploitation of, of natural resources and in, in issues like increased armed trafficking and exploitation, which contribute uh, and, and are vital to the commission of the international crimes. I would look into targeting such actors and using uh, the statute's expansive modes of criminal uh, liability to make sure that we have results in holding such individuals accountable. And I think that could garner great state support. Uh, it could also reduce the trafficking in weapons and the supply of, to armed groups into conflicts and therefore have an impact in reducing the violence within these conflicts. I want to turn now to preliminary examinations, one of the tools that the prosecutor has in his or her toolbox. So I'm going to wrap a few questions up together, but I hope that you're going to uh, tackle all of the different elements. So during the ASP organised hearings, you seem to suggest that uh, preliminary examination should be transparent. How do you balance that against confidentiality? Uh, in the expert report, there was some criticism that we're not getting exit strategies out of how to get out of these uh, preliminary examinations. Is that a way that uh, PEs are not being used correctly now? And we had a question in from one of our community, from Dave Borden, the executive director of Stop the Drug War, in which he says during remarks, she said um, that you should that the Rome Statute might say you have to have an investigation, you should have an investigation. Do you always think that this is the case despite resource constraints and cooperation? So three different questions about preliminary examinations all wrapped into one. Give it a go. <laughs> well, I'll do my best. Uh, first of all, let me say, as I said at uh, the public hearings, um, that I don't believe that lengthy preliminary examinations necessarily ferment positive complementarity. I'll come to it later, but I think one of the major challenges and one of the major difficulties of uh, preliminary examinations is the length. I read in, uh, the in, in the Kenya Human Rights Commission report where it stated that in some instances the situation on the ground worsened and the crimes continued being committed while the office of the prosecutor was still assessing the genuine nature of domestic accountability efforts. To me, preliminary examination should stick to their primary goal. And the primary goal of a preliminary examination is the timely determination of whether the office will seek to exercise the court's jurisdiction and whether to open an investigation. So in regards to time, I think uh, a preliminary investigation should last as long as it's required to fulfill this purpose. Now, regarding the issue of uh, putting pressure on, uh, on states to to have uh, local investigations or prosecuting and, and deterring atrocities. To me, if there's a limited prospect of encouraging national prosecutions, well, then I believe that the office should proceed rigorously and in a timely fashion to determine whether or not to uh, initiate an investigation. And that's important. It's important in order to maximize the opportunities for timely connection of reliable evidence. Witnesses, with the long passage of time, their memories fade. I've, I've seen that and I've experienced that in my career. So it's important to have access to them and have their statements at uh, an early point. And there is um, other types of evidence, such as evidence found uh, on social media, that can disappear with time. Now, where the prospects of encouraging national prosecutions are higher, well, then what I propose is the uh, increased use of benchmarks, of specific steps that we asked, uh, that, that we look for in the efforts of local authorities in investigating and, 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 and uh, prosecuting uh, these crimes. Uh, 
and the use of these benchmarks can serve also as a signal, a signal to a uh, civil society organization as to how they can better amplify the, the office's uh, efforts. I've read many recommendations in the independent expert review uh, that need to be looked into. For example, they talk about an updating of the policy paper of preliminary examinations. I think that is uh, uh, something that I would look into, uh, definitely, and it's in line with what I've told you in updating the, the documents and the investigative processes of the office. They suggest adopting a higher threshold of gravity in the assessment at preliminary investigations. I would look into that. And they also made the interesting suggestion of not taking into account feasibility at the preliminary examination assessment stage. I think that's worth looking into also. That could allow for decisions that are taken more rapidly. I think also the delay in processing preliminary examination can undermine the confidence that uh, the situation countries and the stakeholders, the victims have in the office of the prosecutor and could result in uh, contributing to impunity and even denial of justice for victims. Now, regarding the issue of transparency, well, first of all, I want to clearly state that I would continue uh, the prosecutor's tradition right now of uh, providing annual reporting on preliminary examination. But I believe more has to be done. Uh, I think it requires when you open every preliminary examination that there be a comprehensive outreach plan and that there are communication strategies that are made in order to be able to reach communities such as minorities, women and children. They are the ones who can provide the information upon which the office will make its, its assessment. Now, when you craft such strategies, you need input of in-ground experts. You need the input of community leaders to ensure that these strategies are, are sensitized to the local circumstances. I would want for every preliminary examination that a communication plan be drafted to make sure that all the important stakeholders are informed of the office's activities and in particular, as I said, victims and affected communities. And I would require for every preliminary examination that there are strategies put in place to organize small meetings, either with local law enforcement or community organization. So we better inform the public as to the court's processes and the rights of victims, witnesses, and suspected persons. But by doing so, of course, always respecting the confidentiality obligations of people who provide information to the office in the context of the preliminary examination assessments. Now, talking about decisions that are need to be transparent and swift, uh, and need a lot of uh, have a lot of experts commenting on them and need input. Um, there is a process ongoing now in the court that you're very much a part of, uh, namely the uh, choosing of the candidates for the uh, prosecutor, uh, where there's a lot of criticism about uh, it's not going very fast, it's not very transparent. How do you feel it's gone so far? And do you welcome this whole discussion about possibly opening up uh, the list uh, of candidates to more than just the four that were uh, chosen initially? Well, first of all, let me reassure you, it's going well. But I will say this, uh, this is the most uh, challenging job application process I've been implicated in my life. And I've been implicated in a few. Uh, but I appreciate the opportunity to be part of this process. And frankly speaking, I think all of the process from the application to the interviews with the committee, to the public hearings, to the different meetings I had with uh, the delegations of state parties, to the questionnaires I've answered, and even what we're doing right now, this podcast. Uh, all of this, I think, prepared me even more to assume uh, the position of the prosecutor. In regards to the decision of potentially other candidates to be uh, considered, well, the state parties can, under the, under the processes uh, of the statute and of the International Criminal Court, can nominate candidates themselves for the position of prosecutor. So as a candidate, I don't think it's up to me to comment uh, on what candidate they should consider. But what I do believe 
and what, what I do believe is important is that the next prosecutor be chosen by consensus. I think we can see that the challenges of the next prosecutor are enormous. The challenges of the court are enormous. To me, it's important that a consensual candidate be found to make sure that the next prosecutor has the support of all state parties to undertake this challenging mandate and to implement the important reforms that are required. Well, let's say that you do get uh, elected and uh, you do take over for, um, I think it's a nine-year period. Uh, We had a question in from Sterling Mancuso, who's a fellow Canadian of yours, I believe a student at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. My question for the candidates is, assuming you are elected, at the end of your nine-year tenure, what are three criteria you would like the world to use to judge whether you were a successful or unsuccessful prosecutor? One, I would want to be remembered as someone who brought this organization to a point where it could conduct investigations and prosecutions that that are of the highest quality, that assure for a fair trial to defendants, and that that provide justice to victims and affected communities by these atrocities. That's one. Secondly, I would say a higher conviction rate, but not at any cost. It's a higher conviction rate after a fair trial to the defendant and and a proceeding where victims and affected communities can be heard. And third, I would say that I've contributed to conflict resolution through uh, bringing healing to communities affected by a strong conflict and by atrocities, but through the means of justice and through the means of the fight uh, and ending impunity for such crimes. I think that if I could achieve that legacy, uh, I would want to be remembered for that, definitely. And finally, finally, what are you currently reading, watching, listening to that you might like to recommend to the audience? Well, in regards to reading, I have a particular uh, habit. Uh, I speak uh, four languages. I speak uh, French, English, Spanish and Italian. So I tend to read a different book and, and change in a language to sort of keep me up to speed. Right now, I am reading a novel from the Peruvian author Mario Vargas Llosa. The Spanish name is uh, Tiempos Recios, which means uh, Fierce Times. It uh, talks about uh, the situation uh, in Guatemala uh, and how uh, efforts for democracy uh, early in the in the 50s had been had been undermined and the consequences it, it, uh, it makes a chron- chronology of uh, the evolution of uh, history in Guatemala and the successive dictatorial states that happened so uh, it's a very interesting read Mario Vargas Llosa often looks into historical moments of Latin America and managed to narrate them in a very novelistic form uh, that I find absolutely fascinating so that's what I'm reading uh, that's what I'm reading now I would um, certainly recommend uh, its reading uh, the last book I read in English was recommended to me uh, by a Superior Court judge here in Quebec in my last tr- jury trial. And it goes with a recommendation of a podcast also. And the book is written by Preet Bahara. Preet Bahara was the U.S. Uh, attorney for the Southern District of New York. The judge who asked me to buy the book said that it should be required reading for any prosecutor. The book is called... Uh, doing Justice, a prosecutor's uh, reflection on, um, on on the lessons that can be learned from the application of the rule of law and the uh, and, and, and the criminal process in society in general. I, I highly recommend anyone who's interested into justice and in particular in regards to how uh, prosecution services uh, must function, investigative agencies must function, and how lessons from the, uh, the criminal process 
can be taken for society in general, I think yeah, it's a definitely a recommended reading. And since then, I've been an astute listener to his podcast, uh, Stay Tuned with Preet Bahara. Uh, so I guess these would be my recommendations. I think my last recommendation for a podcast would be your own podcast, which I've recently discovered and that uh, I uh, strongly recommend uh, to viewers and that I will continue to view, uh, to listen to in the future. Well, thank you very much. That's very kind of you. And uh, we've taken up an awful lot of your time. So uh, thank you very much for uh, for letting us chat to you. We'll see what happens. Yes, thank you very much and good luck with the rest of the process. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, and uh, well, you know, hopefully we'll get another chance to talk and I'll, I'll remain myself available, be assured. This was an episode from The Prosecutor Files, a special series in which we interview candidates for ICC Prosecutor. We are Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, and I'm Janet Alderson. And I'm Stephanie van den Berg. If you want to check out our huge archive of interviews with international justice experts or read the show notes, please go to our website, asymmetricalhaircuts.com. And there you'll also find all the ways to subscribe and ensure that you never miss another episode or update. You can give us a rating on any major podcast platform or you can follow us on Twitter, AsymmetricalH. This episode in the series of The Prosecutor Files has been produced with sound editing support from Open Society Foundations. Music is by audionautics.com. Stay safe. And have a great day.